We are looking at Exodus 3, 1 through 15. We're in that section in the book of Exodus in which we are focusing in a special way on God's calling of Moses, who is the Old Covenant Redeemer. Moses is the Old Covenant Redeemer. He's the type of Christ. And we've already considered in, in part the preparation of Moses. We've seen how God protected him as an infant. We've seen how God prepared him in the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt. We've seen how God has drawn him out of Egypt and put him in the wilderness where we're going to see God deal with him now 40 years later. And we're going to see God's further dealings with Moses as he calls him. Um, it's really quite instructive the, the length that God goes to in the calling of Moses in conditioning him to be the redeemer of the old covenant and the type of Christ who is the mediator of the new covenant and the redeemer of Jews and Gentiles. Yet we're looking tonight at Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 and we're going to read down to verse 15. This is God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb to the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to, to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all Generations, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, 
in his great theological work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin has that opening section, and it's so well-known and so loved in church history, in which Calvin says, if a man or a woman is ever to come to know himself or herself rightly, who we are, we have to first climb up and behold the face of God and see who he is. If I'm ever to interpret myself rightly, who am I? I must first climb up and see who the infinitely holy God is. And as I've thought about that and as I prepared for this, uh, preaching this passage tonight, I thought really this passage captures that so well. Here as God is for the first time revealing himself to Moses and as the Lord is going to reveal who he is to Moses, even as he calls Moses to do what he wants him to do, uh, Moses is going to realize that it's not so much about who he is as it is about who God is that matters in both life and in Christian service. That's really the big lesson here. Who God is and the revelation of himself is really the most important thing for us if we're ever going to come to realize who we are but if we're ever going to really live the Christian life and labor in Christian service and ministry. Well, as I've noted, Moses has been out in the wilderness. Remember, God uh, sent him out there. Moses had tried to take into his own hands the deliverance of his people when he killed the, the Egyptian who was beating, severely beating his Hebrew brethren. And, and he had left Egypt when he realized that he was going to put the people in jeopardy for what he had done and that they were going to suffer greater oppression at the the hands of Pharaoh. And he had fled into the wilderness. He had been in the wilderness um, for a period of time, and and we've seen the character of Moses developing in the wilderness. He, He has learned to protect others, remember, against those ruthless men. He protected um, the daughters of... um, who would become his father-in-law, and he has done so without killing them, and God is developing Moses' character in the wilderness. He is already making him into the man he wants him to be. Um, It's going to take 40 long years from when Moses thought he would be the Redeemer to when God would be ready to send him out as the Redeemer. He would be 80 years old. It's a long time of preparation and waiting and um, having yourself prepared and developed to be the man that God wants you to be. I think it was Ian Bounds, um, the author that wrote that great book on prayer that said, God is not looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. God is looking for better men. The life of Moses really captures that for us. And here as the Lord is now going to, to, reveal himself to Moses, you get the sense that Moses has learned to be content. This is a really important, just passing observation before we look at this in detail. Moses has become a shepherd. He's become a trustworthy man. In that society, uh, sheep were about the most uh, expensive and valuable thing that you you could own. And and for his father-in-law, Jethro, to entrust to him this sort of wealth, knowing that he could have taken off with it, is quite remarkable. Moses has become trustworthy, and Moses seems to be content living as a shepherd. And yet God has other plans for Moses. And tonight, I want us to consider uh, just two things in this aspect of the calling of Moses. I want us to consider first a visible revelation of God to Moses, 
And then I want us to consider an audible revelation of God to Moses, a visible revelation and an audible revelation. We'll notice uh, that we are told Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, we don't know much about this. Scholars have debated exactly where this mountain would have been. And, and while there are good archaeological estimations about where this mountain is, the really important thing about this, and we don't want to miss this, is that this will later become called the mountain of God. This is the mountain that God chose to reveal himself at. This is where God would later give Moses the Ten Commandments. This is where God would give some of the greatest revelation of himself And so God is, in a sense, setting apart something very ordinary, and he is doing something sacred. He is carving out for for Moses what is going to be sacred space in which he's going to reveal himself. And notice that we read in verse 2, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, I remember as a boy... Uh, loving that movie with Charlton Heston with the cheesy bush on fire because the graphics were so horrible. I'm sure this was really spectacular. I mean, Moses had no doubt seen bushes burning in the wilderness over that 40-year period, but something was different about this bush. This bush was burning from within, and it was not consumed. And I remember as a little boy wondering, why in the world did God reveal himself in a flaming bush. Well, the good thing is, if you're wondering that, Moses was wondering that. Notice, I've always been entertained by this. It's one of those sort of almost comical responses. Moses looked over, the bush was burning, it was not consumed, and Moses said, presumably to himself, I will turn aside and see this bush and why it's burning and not consumed. So he is interested in what is happening. He doesn't know what this means. And and God is going to reveal something wonderful about himself in this visible sign. Now, many older theologians and writers and many Jewish scholars historically have said the bush stood for Israel. The fire stood for their affliction. And the angel present stood for God about to deliver them from that affliction. I don't think that's what it means. That's a common interpretation, but I don't think it captures the essence of what God is actually doing, because this is a revelation of God. The entire appearing of God to Moses on the mountain is for God to reveal himself first visibly, in a visible form, and then verbally, he's going to explain exactly who he is, so Moses understands that all of this is about God, not about Moses per se. Now, what's interesting is, um, before I get into that, you know, Moses is just out there sort of doing his thing, content, and it's at that moment when God gives the greatest revelation of himself. I always found that fascinating. There's a lot, especially younger men, who are, who are zealous to do something for the Lord, and, and Moses was such a man, wasn't he, when he was younger? He wanted to be used by God in big ways. But it was, when, it was when Moses wasn't seeking great things that God came to him. 
That's a really important point. It was when Moses wasn't seeking great things. He was over by himself. Phil Riken says this, a person never knows when his life might be changed forever by an encounter with the living God. Not a chance encounter. For it was God's providence that led Moses to the far side of the devil desert. Here it is worth noticing that God did not meet Moses where Moses was, but brought Moses to the place where he was. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is orchestrating this revelation, and the Lord is going to guide Moses into what he wants to teach him about himself. Now, that's a comforting thought, because if it was up to us, we would just grope around in spiritual blindness, because we cannot come to see and know in our own seeking and searching the immortal, invisible, God-only wise. Um, This is why the Apostle Paul says, There are none that seek. And why the prophets say that God would be found by one that didn't seek. Um, Moses becomes an example of this. It is all of God's grace. Conversion is of God's grace. Calling into ministry is of God's grace. And God does it at his time and in his way. And and he chooses to do so with this burning bush. Now, um, the burning bush reveals so much about God. It, it first and foremost reveals his power. This is the God that has power over creation. He made the bush. He made the fire. He, he can make the fire burn in the bush without the bush being consumed. He is revealing his power to Moses. Um, Riken again said, this miraculous sign pointed to God's power by revealing his control over creation. Who else but God? has the power to make a bush without its being consumed. It pointed also now secondly to God's glory. It gave a glimpse of his brightness and his splendor, that God is light and in him is no darkness. He is is emanating his glory from inside this bush. Um, A third thing that this reveals about God is his self-sufficiency. The bush burns from within itself. It's not dependent on any external thing making it burn. God has made the bush burn from within itself. Riken again says, the sign pointed to God's self-sufficiency. God never runs out of fuel. His, his glory never dims. His beauty never fades. He's always burning bright. This is because God does not get his energy from anyone or anything outside of himself. He is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his eternal being. That is what is being revealed in the burning bush. God is sufficient in himself. It is, as you know, also revealing God's holiness. Moses will go on later in Deuteronomy 4.24, and he will tell Israel, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Where do you think he got that language? Um, The Lord our God is a consuming fire. He got it from that revelation at the bush. Um, He got it because God told him, do not come near. Take your your shoes off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. He is revealing his holiness. He is saying, I am holy other. I am pure. I am righteous. I am upright. I am undefiled. I am infinitely good and right and just. I am perfect in all of my being and all of my attributes. Uh, Joel Beakey has said, while holiness is a very difficult concept to define, it is very simply the outshining 
of the perfections of God. That he is in and of himself holy, other, and perfect. He is of pure, he, he, is, he is so pure that the angels have to cover their eyes when they see him and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, I'm going to argue that R.C. Sproul was right in making his ministry about the holiness of God because if there's one thing that people in the church have not adequately grasped and we don't adequately think about is the infinite holiness of God. He is of purer eyes than to look on evil. And we are all evil. We are all sin. And he is so holy that Moses can't just come skip into his presence giddily. You know, we have all taken God's name up on our lips with our hearts being far from him, but there is, there is a glibness with which people talk about God in our day. There is a glibness. Our God is a consuming fire. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, he is not to be trifled with or spoken of um, in trifling ways. That's the first aspect of the revelation of God. Notice, the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Notice Moses' response at the end of verse 6. He, he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the same response that Isaiah had when God brought him into that heavenly vision, and he said, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And, and then when Christ comes, who is the infinite God, who is the Holy One of Israel, and, and in that first revelation to Peter, when he tells him to throw his net over, and he has that great catch of fish, and what does Peter do? He falls down and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That that's the proper response to the infinitely holy God is I am undone. The publican could not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He had a sense of the holiness of God, that, that tax collector, who was scorned by the religious elite. He understood that God was holy and he was not. Now, here's the good news. God is not only showing his transcendence in all of these things, that he is holy other, that he is high above, that he says do not come near. He is also showing his imminence, isn't he? He is coming near. Isn't that marvelous? He's not telling Moses not to come near. He's saying not to come near in your own way on your own terms. When he says take your shoes off your feet, he's not saying get away from me. He's saying you can only come into my presence. If you come in the right way. Now we know that there is only one right way to come into the presence of God, and that is through the mediation of Jesus, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the blood of Christ. I personally, and, and I'm not going to argue with you about this, but I've always hated the um, you know, um, Sunday best, wear your Sunday best argument, because your Sunday best is Jesus. It's being clothed in Christ. If I can say this reverently, God doesn't care what you're wearing to church as long as you're coming into his presence by faith in Jesus Christ. If you think the infinitely God, holy God accepts you because of your clothes, you have such a low view of holiness. 
In fact, James will go on to say if we despise one that comes in, that, that we've become judges and lawgivers, and we've made ourselves a law unto ourselves. And yet, we have to come, and we can only come into the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are accepted only on behalf of him. Um, you know, Moses is going to teach Israel this lesson later when God is giving the law, and there's thunder and lightning and smoke and the voice of words. And the writer of Hebrews says that, that so fearful was it that if a, a, a beast came close, it should be stoned or shot. And, and the people said, don't let God speak to us anymore. But, but then the writer of Hebrews contrasts that and he says, but in Jesus, now we've been brought near to the heavenly Zion. We have access into the very presence of this holy God. Isn't that remarkable? You can go right now into the presence of this God if you go on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross, on the basis of his righteousness and his mediation, that's absolute. And you can go boldly. Right of Hebrews says, let us come boldly to the throne of God. What, a, what an amazing God that he is so transcendent, and yet he is so imminent in coming near to his people. You know, there's no other religion that has a God like that. No, Islam will tell you that Allah is wholly other. Well, then how can you ever be reconciled to him? You can't. He's an idol. Um, other religions are pantheistic or monistic, and they say, you know, you're just, you're one with, you're one with everything, and you are God, and God is you, and we're all in this big circle, and that means that, that people that believe that need to come with term, to terms with the fact that they're one with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because that's the implication of that. And with all the evil and all the wickedness and the pedophiles and everything else, and that's pantheism and that's monism and that's idolatry. And yet, the truth of the true and living God is that he is infinitely exalted. He dwells in his high and holy place. And yet he also dwells with him who is contrite and humble in heart to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that marvelous? When you are in the lowest place... Christ is willing to come near to you. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoking wick. He comes to his own. He comes into the world as the Redeemer. He came into the world he made. Think about that. This God, who is infinitely holy, is the same God who came into this world to save his people. That's why at Christmas we love, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. The burning bush is teaching us that this is God with us. In fact, I'm going to argue that, that the bush, the burning bush is a type of the Lord Jesus. John Owen, the great prince of the Puritan uh, theologians, you don't want to disagree with him on most things, maybe one or two. But he says this fire was a type of the presence of God in the person of the Son. How? Listen. The being of the fire in the bush was a type of him in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. you got to think about this. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And so, Owen says, he was made flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal fire of the divine nature dwells in the bush of a frail nature like ours, yet it is not consumed. Wow, that's awesome. The infinite God is inseparably united to the human nature of Christ and doesn't consume it. 
Two natures, God and man in one person. The bush is a Christophany. It's a theophany. It's pointing us. And in fact, I'm going to argue we know that because the angel of the Lord appears. And, and so there is a revelation of the Lord himself at the bush, in the bush, in the fire, burning, but not consumed. Well, I want us secondly to consider the verbal revelation of God. Now, if I can say this reverently, this is the more important revelation. Why would I say that? Because God's visible revelations were few and far between in redemptive history. They were not commonplace. They happened at certain epochs in redemptive history when God was doing something marvelous. Certainly here at the time of the Exodus, there were signs, there were wonders in great measure. But but most of those seemed to fizzle out throughout much of Israel's history after Elijah and Elisha, and then they resurface in the coming of Jesus and the apostles, and then they cease again. But God's verbal revelation is the more powerful of the two because God speaks a very powerful word about himself. We would never know this God unless he revealed himself to us. You know, I sometimes will sit around and think, what what in the world does it mean that God revealed himself to me? The living God revealed himself to me. He didn't have to. There have been many people God has not given a verbal revelation to, but in Scripture, he has given it to us. Um, Here, notice that Moses is uh, listening to what God is saying, and the very first thing that God reveals is his covenant faithfulness. By the way, there's so much God is revealing about himself in this. Where do we see that? Notice, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Right? Remember, he's the covenant Lord. He has made them the covenant people. He has given the covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to reiterate Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob recurrently in this passage. And he is essentially saying, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of Egypt and bring them to the land Flowing with milk and honey. God is saying, I am going to be faithful to my covenant promises to do what I said I was going to do to Abraham in giving my people an inheritance. And I'm going to bring them out of the bondage of Egypt, just like I told Abraham I would. And even though 400 long years have passed, and God has not said one word, by the way, between the revelation he gave to Jacob and his sons, And now that he gives to Moses a long period of God being silent and Israel suffering, God is now going to come and reveal that he is the faithful covenant-keeping Lord. Now that's something for our souls to latch on to. Every single thing that God has said he would do, he has already fulfilled in Christ. And will do. That's why that verse is so great in 2 Corinthians, that all the promises of God are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God. They are all guaranteed, and here's why. Because Christ said yes to the covenant curses that God promised. On the cross, Jesus said, I will take the curses that Yahweh has promised to send on his disobedient people so that all of the blessings that God has promised will be secured for them in me. 
And so even God's revelation of his covenant faithfulness here and the type of bringing Israel into the land of, of Egypt is, is promising his covenant faithfulness and redemption in giving his people an everlasting um, inheritance, in, in delivering us from the bondage that we were into Satan and sin and death. Isn't that glorious? It's all built on his covenant faithfulness. And then it's built on a revelation of his compassion. What kind of God is this? I've seen my people. I've seen their affliction. I've heard their cries. He cares. This is why we take comfort in those verses, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. This God that doesn't have to care for us has bound his compassionate being to us. He is a compassionate God. I would challenge you to go through the Old Testament and do a study of the compassion of the Lord. He is gracious and merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. What a comfort for sinners like us. That he sees us weighed down by the burden of our sin or the afflictions of life or the miseries or the trials or the hardships. And he cares. He cares for us. He takes note of what we're going through. And he intervenes for us. Well, there is and in the most astonishing way now, a revelation of his eternality and sufficiency. Notice that Moses himself is, is insecure. Moses has a sense of inferiority, and he has an ignorance of God. These are two great hindrances that Moses is going to have to get over. Notice that after the Lord says this to him, notice verse 11, Moses said to God, but who am I? Isn't that interesting? Moses is more concerned in who he is than in whom the Lord is. And God is not going to tell Moses who he is. That's interesting to me. He's not going to tell Moses who he is. Who am I? Moses says he has this deep sense of inferiority. And just as an aside, by the way, many times when God wants to use us in ministry, we can have a sinful sense of inferiority that keeps us paralyzed from ministry ministering to others. Now, now we can have a real sense of humility, and Moses does have some of that. This is a different Moses than the Moses we saw 40 years before in Egypt, brazen and taking the bull by the horns. This is Moses now saying, who am I? There's, there is true humility, but there is also sinful insecurity. Um, who am I? He says that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Notice the Lord doesn't tell him who he is. The Lord says, I will be with you. Isn't that awesome? God answers Moses' question, who am I, by saying, I will be with you. How do our own insecurities, sinful insecurities, flee away? By knowing that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. No, Moses is going to get that, and he's going to go up against the most powerful ruler in the world fearlessly because he will learn that God is with him. Also notice this. I love this. He says at the end of verse 12, um, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, just think with me for a second. Moses is essentially saying, I need assurance that I'm the guy for the job. And God has said, essentially, you're not the man for the job. I'm the God for the job. I'm going to be with you. 
And I'm going to give you a sign so that you know I'm with you. When I bring you here after I deliver everybody, you'll know that I sent you. Is that not awesome? So Moses is not going to know it until it happens. And he's going to have to take God at his word and he's going to have to say, the Lord has promised to be with me. God has said, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to go forward with confidence knowing that the Lord has said this to me. And, you know, before we talk about the eternality and self-sufficiency of God in depth, I want to say this. Everything Moses really needed was in God himself. Everything you need is in God. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. Everything that we need is in the Lord, both for nature and for redemption. Everything Moses needed was in God. And Eric Alexander put it this way, that's why God is assuring him that of everything he needed in every area where his inadequacy burdened him, God was sufficient for that. Um, You know, Moses still doesn't know who this is. He is going to now ask God. He has an ignorance about who God is and what should I tell the people the name of this God is that that is revealing himself to me. And, And notice, God said to Moses, and the people ask, you tell them, I am who I am. Tell the people, I am sent you. Um, now, this is a difficult phrase. Um, in the Hebrew, it basically denotes, I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. It, it, it carries with it the idea of the eternality of God, especially that phrase, I am who I am. But then when he just says, I am, he is talking about his own self-sufficiency. He's uncreated. He, he sustains himself. He is infinite in his perfections. He lacks nothing. He is his perfections. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He doesn't need anything. He didn't need to create this world. He doesn't gain anything from anything outside of himself. And he gives to everything life and breath and all things out of his own fullness. Now, that's the kind of God we have to pray to. That's the God we can trust. And that's the God who redeems us. You know this so well. John chapter 8, the Jews are contending with Jesus. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. How have you seen Abraham? He says, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus Christ, is the same Yahweh who appealed to Moses, who appeared to Moses at the bush, who revealed himself to Moses at the bush, who said, I will be with you, I will go with you, and I will do as I have said, and I am the ever-existing, eternal, and self-sufficient God. Now that means that the power that is evident in the burning bush, the self-sufficiency of the flame in the burning bush, the holiness that is represented at the burning bush, the transcendence of the burning bush, the imminence of God in the burning bush, 
the revelation of God's covenant faithfulness and what he said he's going to do for Israel, the revelation of his compassion, the revelation of his eternal nature, and the revelation of his self-sufficiency are all revelations of Jesus Christ. So that if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. Um, What an astonishing truth that what God has done in Jesus Christ is greater than what he did for Moses at the bush. What he's done for us, that, that the revelation that we get in Christ is greater than what Moses got at the bush. Moses hid his face at the bush, and and we're told that we get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We get to see the full revelation of God in the Redeemer. I want to just point out one other thing here, because all of this is pointing to the work of redemption, and I've often thought it was interesting. You know, several times in here it says the bush... The bush burned and it was not consumed. But, you know, the Lord Jesus was consumed by the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the justice of God on the cross. Isn't that interesting? God consumed himself on the cross for our sins. Um, that's, that's a greater revelation than the burning bush. When you look at the cross, you see more of God than Moses saw at the bush. We see more of the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the love of God than Moses saw at the bush. We see how God can be infinitely holy and infinitely merciful to sinners like you and me at the cross. Isn't that awesome? I want to encourage you tonight as we are looking at these things and considering the call of Moses um, I want to ask you, how often do you meditate on who God is? You know, that's, that's something we've got to do much more than we do, to meditate on the attributes of God. Um, when Anna and I were dating, I gave her a book on the attributes of God, and she wrote me this really sweet letter, and, and I was like, oh, i got to marry this girl right now, and before she doesn't marry me. And... Uh, And she said, I've never thought of God in these ways. We don't meditate enough on the multi-varied attributes of God. He is so many-sided. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. So the many sides of God. And then I want to ask you if you have really come to terms with the fact of God's holiness and your sinfulness. You know, that, that's essential to be a Christian. Anyone who has ever really come to Christ has first, to some degree, acknowledged how holy God is and how sinful they are. That's how we come to know who we really are, as Calvin said. And then I want us to consider, and I want you to leave with this thought, The infinitely holy God who cannot welcome you into his presence has consumed himself on account of your sins on the cross in the person of Jesus so that you can have boldness into the very throne room of heaven, into the very presence of God. How amazing is that? 
You can come boldly. You don't come with trepidation. He says we go boldly to the throne of God that we may receive grace and mercy from God to help us in times of need. That's the kind of God we have. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are weighty truths, and yet we need them to pre- need you to press them down upon us. Would you please reveal more of yourself to us, even as you have tonight? Would you make us a people who receive that verbal revelation of your word about your character, your being, and your attributes, about your holiness and your power, about your transcendence and your imminence, about your covenant faithfulness, your compassion, and your self-sufficiency and eternality. Lord, would you help us to receive all of those truths, and would you make us to see how all of those attributes come together in Christ crucified for us so that we might be the recipients of your grace and mercy? Lord, would you do that for each and every man and woman and boy and girl in this room? We pray these things for your namesake, And for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.